Winston Churchill was one of the greatest leaders of the modern era, but he had many troubles on his way to becoming prime minister. His life really was a roller coaster of many sorts of adventures. He was a warrior, a political leader, a prisoner of war who escaped captivity, an author, a lover of pets. He created the modern states of Jordan and Iraq. If you didn't know that, you should look into it. It's pretty interesting. Of course, we know him best as the man who kept his country and really the Western world from being devoured by the jaws of Hitler's Third Reich before America entered the Second World War. Now, those days were barely 5% of his 90-year life, but they were crucial. They were agonizing. They were history-making days to which he is forever linked in our minds. After more than 100 years of adventure, we've come to the main event of Abraham's life. Nothing that he experienced, and he experienced a lot, but nothing would have greater gravity or significance than Genesis 22. Now, most of us are familiar with the story, but that uh, shouldn't lessen the weight of what God asked or the wonder of Abraham's obedience as we take a look at it again. This text is a telling diagram of really what it means to obey and how Christian faith is carried out. Uh, we're told in the New Testament that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Uh, he's given to us as an example in the hall of faith uh, and says, hey, so as we've seen these people walk with the Lord, so we too are supposed to walk with the Lord. And so we see this great diagram of obedience in this passage. But while we're learning about obedience and carrying out the Christian faith in our personal lives, we have to come to the conclusion that God is acting strangely in this story. Uh, it's, it's uncomfortable if we pause to think about it for a minute. Why in the world would he ask Abraham to do something as repulsive as sacrifice his own son on an altar? Why does it seem like God had secretly added a condition to his unconditional covenant with Abraham at the end of our passage? If James tells us God doesn't tempt anyone, which he does in his epistle, why does this chapter seem to show the opposite to be true? Something more is going on here than God simply giving us a lesson on obedience. Something more is going on than God simply checking whether his servant was really going to obey him or not. There's an article I saw titled, 10 Great Examples of Foreshadowing in the Movies. And one of the examples they used was interesting. They pointed out that in Martin Scorsese's uh, hit movie, The Departed, the director expertly tells the audience who is going to get killed right before it happens by placing crosses all around them in the background. In our text, something similar is happening. God is not acting badly. He's foreshadowing. What we're going to read tonight really happened, has real application for our lives as Christians, yes, but it was also a dress rehearsal for a much more significant, much more important, much more in essential sacrifice that would have to be made several thousand years later. God wanted us to be able to see it coming and to know where it would happen, why it would happen, and to whom it would happen. For thousands of years of human history, God not only worked out the plan of redemption, which is a very complicated and difficult plan to accomplish, something only God could do. He was not only working that plan out, 
He was also embedding clues in human history and clues in his revelation to us so that we would discover them and so that we could understand what was taking place when his son finally put on flesh and came and dwelt among us and when he gave himself to die in our place. So this is not just a story about obedience, though it is a story about obedience. It's also a story about Jesus. And so hopefully tonight we can sort of take up both of these threads, our obedience as we walk with the Lord, as well as the foreshadowing of what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did for us. And hopefully we can benefit from both of those things and what they might teach us. So we begin in verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Abraham's obedience starts with a very simple reply, here I am, right? The Lord called him. He said, here I am. That is the foundation of faith. We see this happen a lot, especially in the Old Testament. Little boy Samuel was called by God. He said, here I am. Moses was called to uh, from the burning bush by God. Moses said, here I am. Isaiah said, here I am, in his, one of his famous passages. Now, those fellows, like Abraham, didn't know what the next word would be from the mouth of God. Uh, you can't necessarily predict what he's going to say and what he's going to ask of you. But if we're talking about God speaking to us, God directing us, it doesn't really matter what comes next, right? If the Lord calls you to something, it doesn't matter if it's to something near or far, easier, difficult, new or old, right? Because it's God and he's our master. He's our creator. He is our uh, greatest friend, the lover of our souls. And so it doesn't matter what comes next. Here I am. I'm ready to hear. I'm ready to be sent. I'm ready to follow. I'm ready to do what my king wants me to do. This call and response also reminds us something sweet about God himself, about his character and his nature. God does not ask you to do something that he's unwilling to do. Uh, there is such a, a, a great difference between our God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, and any other God conceived uh, by humanity in any other philosophy or world religion. Our God put on flesh. Our God suffered for us. Our God doesn't ask us to do things he's unwilling to do. And for, there's a great example, or there's a great demonstration of that sort of embedded here. God identifies himself in Isaiah chapter 52 this way. He says, my people will know my name. I am he who says, here I am. And I think that's just such a beautiful picture because God does call to us. He's probably not going to call to you audibly. I suppose he might, uh, he could at some point. But for most of us throughout our lives, uh, we're following the, the revealed word of God given to us in the scriptures. We're not going to hear an audible voice the way that Abraham did. But we still are called by him. We're called by the Holy Spirit. We're called by the scriptures to follow after him and do what he wants us to do and to honor him with our lives and to glorify him and receive from him all he wants to give us. And he knows us by name. He has the hairs of your head numbered. He has every one of your tears saved in a bottle. These things are all true. And God says, not only do I call you, you can call me. You can call me by name. I'll tell you who I am. And not only will I let you call me, I'll give you my phone number. I'll also pick up the phone. Man, I never answer my phone anymore. Uh, if my wife calls, I'll answer. But otherwise, it's like, eh, they can leave a voicemail. But God doesn't do that. He says, I am he who says, here I am. And so if you need to call out to the Lord tonight, do it, and he will answer. We're told God tested Abraham. If we're honest, uh, that makes us squirm a little bit. We don't like hearing that. 
But there's an important distinction that we need to keep in mind, right? I mean, do you really, it, it feels a little bit weird to say, well, God tested us. It's kind of like when we get to the book of Job and, and God says, yeah, go ahead and, and, and mess with Job's life a little bit. Uh, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable. So what's going on here? There's a distinction to keep in mind. There's quite a big difference between tempting and testing. The devil tempts you. The world tempts you. Your flesh tempts you. And the purpose of tempting is to bring out evil. The purpose of tempting is to ruin you, is to uh, catch you in a trap and, and to cause something negative to happen to you. God's testing is never like that. God's testing never has your failure in mind. The purpose of his testing is to bring good out, to bring his glory out of your life. Uh, we talk about God's testing to be his refining work, the way metals are refined, uh, a truing work to make things true and straight and square in our lives. Maybe you heard that one of the local businesses here in town last week, they lost their liquor license. They got revoked uh, because there was a sting operation from, you know, whatever government bureau does that sort of thing. They went in and uh, solicited them to do something illegal, and the employees did it. And they said, okay, guess what? We're the cops, and now you have no liquor license, and everybody's in trouble. That's not what God's testing is all about. God's testing is to prove the incredible work that He is doing in your life and that He is conforming you into His image and that He is transforming you from the inside out. It's a lot more like the guy who invented modern body armor. Have you seen this guy on YouTube? It's from a long time ago. But he realized that uh, you know, law enforcement officers, military, they needed better technology for body armor. And so he developed you know, what we think of with the modern bulletproof vest. How do you sell a bulletproof vest you shoot yourself with a, bullet, with a gun while you're wearing a bulletproof vest, and he did so, and he filmed it. That's testing his product. And he wasn't saying, oh, I hope this doesn't work. Uh, he knew that it was going to work. He knew how strong his product was. He knew that he had done what was necessary uh, to, to prove that quality. And so when God gives us a test, it is not a trap. It is a refining process. It is a proving of what he has already been at work in your life. At. The Bible Knowledge Commentary points out a key to this, though. A test of true faith must defy human logic. It has to, because it's about a supernatural faith and a supernatural God. And so this had to defy human logic. The test had to be something that Abraham would not want to do, that he would never choose to do on his own. And here's what it was. Verse 2, take your son, God said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. The burnt offering was the way that human beings could renew their broken relationship with God. But God had never asked for or accepted a human sacrifice for a burnt offering. We're not sure, but we think probably Abel was offering a burnt offering there at the early chapters of Genesis. Noah offered a burnt offering, lots and lots of burnt offerings under the law, the Mosaic system. It was a way to renew relationship with God because there was a divide because of sin. God is a holy God. We are a sinful people. And he says, hey, there is a problem here. Right now, we are incompatible because you are sinners. You have brought guilt onto yourself, and I am a perfectly holy God. But I want to renew our relationship that we human beings broke with God. And so he gave us burnt offerings in this time period, what we would call a dispensation. 
Uh, he had never accepted a human sacrifice. God, unlike all the other gods in Canaan and the surrounding areas, he wasn't into that. He wasn't into human sacrifices. And yet, now he is demanding it. And not just any human. God could not be more specific. He singles Isaac out with four very clear descriptors. Have you ever been singled out? It's never good. Hey, you, yeah, you, that guy. Uh-oh, we're in trouble now, right? It's like when you're walking out of the... Um, walking out of a store and through their, their dumb metal detector things and it starts going off and everybody's like, he's shoplifted. I just, <laughs> I just want my fizzy water and I want to be able to go. Can I please go? Nobody wants to be singled out in this way. Isaac was very much singled out. This is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ for us, a type so that we might understand how to identify Jesus. The only begotten son of the father, the son of promise, the son that was born supernaturally, he would have to be offered as a sacrifice in order for the relationship between God and man to be repaired. Just as only Isaac fit the description that God gave here, only Jesus of Nazareth fits the list which describes who the Messiah would be. There's nobody else that comes even close. Uh, the, the Lord said, hey, a Messiah is coming, and he, and he told mankind for thousands of years, a Messiah is coming, a Messiah is coming. Here's what he'll be like. Here's what he'll do. Here's what he'll be from. Here's how you will know him. Again and again and again, God gave to, you know, God is not trapped by time and space the way that we are, but he gave us hundreds of prophecies before Jesus came so that when the Messiah finally came, we could be like, well, it's obviously this guy. He he checks every single box. And Jesus did check every single box. We don't really have time for it tonight, but there's such a great math thing that some guy did a long time ago. This, um, this professor, he talks about um, the mathematical probability that Jesus could have fulfilled just eight of the prophecies that he fulfilled. And, and it is such an astounding number. It's, it's if you... I'll, let's go ahead and do it. Who cares about time? If you took... You took uh, a one silver dollar, right? Uh, and you, if you had an unlimited number of silver dollars and you took one of them and you put a black stripe on it and then you covered the entire state of Texas, something like three feet deep, deep the entire state, three feet deep full of stacks of silver dollars, uh, and then you stirred it all up because you're the genie from Aladdin and you stirred it all up and you did all of that and then you put on a blindfold and you said, pick out the one silver dollar that has a black stripe. Jesus did that right? It's a mathematical absurdity. And that was eight. Jesus fulfilled upwards of 365 different prophecies before that were given about him being, coming to earth the first time. doesn't count all the prophecies that he's going to fulfill still. And so only Jesus, only Jesus of Nazareth fits the list. There were hundreds of specific descriptors that God gave us so that we could identify and recognize the Messiah when he came. And Jesus not only fulfilled them all mostly, he fulfilled them all perfectly. And he fulfilled all the ones, even the ones that he had nothing to do with, like where he would be born. Any of you have anything to do with where you were born? Me either. Uh, but Jesus fulfilled all of them. And not only was he the only one who did all these things so that we could recognize him, this is also important. God gave us this list to show that there was only one sacrifice that he was willing to accept. Listen, we owe a debt to God because of sin. We owe a penalty, a fine, right? Like when you 
uh, if you get a speeding ticket, they say you owe dollars. And you say, well, I came and brought a bunch of farm fresh eggs. They're going to say, we don't take farm fresh eggs. We take dollars. And so God said, hey, you are all guilty of sin like a billion times over. Uh, and I will take one and only one payment for that sin, and this is who it's going to be, the Messiah. Just as God was not willing to receive Ishmael in Genesis 22 or some other household servant or a pile of riches or anything else, so too only Jesus, the Son of promise, the Son born supernaturally, only the Son of God can pay the bill, no one else. What must Abraham have thought? You can't mentally prepare for something as shocking as this, and you can't get worse news than this. Some of you have received some really, really bad news in your life, and, and you, you can't have worse news than what Abraham is receiving that day. Now, we are given a glimpse into what Abraham was thinking over in Hebrews 11, and that is a section of Scripture that teaches us about how to live by faith. And we're told there that Abraham knew that God was serious. He knew God wasn't fooling. He wasn't pulling a prank on him. This wasn't a just kidding sort of thing. He knew God was serious, but at the same time, he fully believed God who had said, I'm going to accomplish my purposes for your life through Isaac. So he, he knew both of these things were true. And so we're told that he considered these things and he came to the conclusion that, well, I guess God will have to raise Isaac from the dead. And what that shows us is that he knew that, okay, it I'm, I'm, looks like I'm going to have to kill my son. But it also is true that God has to do his work through Isaac. And so this is going to be a very bad day, but we are going to do this, and it's on God to take care of it. This doesn't make the job any easier, right? Just because he thought Isaac was going to raise from the dead doesn't make this job any easier. It's not like, oh, well, no, so now it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. I remember once our son... Ezekiel, he was a real little guy, and um, he got a really bad wood sliver in the flush, you know, in the bottom of his foot, in the soft part of the bottom of his foot. And we were looking at it, and we thought, okay, well, we, man, we got to get this thing out. And we were really confident we were going to get it out, and at the, in the end, it was going to be okay. We knew that, but that didn't make the getting part any easier. <laughs> and you know what? It was unpleasant, uh, and we didn't get the job done, and poor Ezekiel was in a lot of agony for a lot of hours. We had to take him to the doctor, and the doctor looked at it, and he said, nope, and he said, you got to go to a podiatrist, and it all got taken care of, but we knew that it was going to get worse before it got better, and knowing the end that it would get better didn't make the during any easier. And you know what? I wasn't worried that I was going to kill my son that day. I just thought, this is going to be really rough as I'm digging around in his foot with some tweezers. Verse 3, so Abraham got up early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering and set out to go to the place God had told him about. In this diagram of obedience, we see not only a readiness to obey, but once the call came in, Abraham wasted no time, no time at all. He rose early for what would be the worst days of his life and met them head on. He takes the saddle, he takes the donkey, he takes the axe, he taps two servants on the shoulder and says, hey, pack a lunch, we're, we're heading out. He picks a suitable tree and felled it, breaking it down into logs for the job. How much wood do you need to burn up a young man? Abraham would have had to calculate that. We would have had to think about it. <clears throat> 
some of you barbecuers, you think about how much charcoal you're going to use, right? You, you think, okay, well, we're just putting a few burgers on, or hey, I'm doing four tri-tips. And so you think about that stuff and figure it all out. Um, and so it's, it's kind of silly because we know it's going to end really well, but there's nothing silly about this. Abraham had to sit down and think, I wonder how much wood it would take for me to burn up my son. Uh, and that's what the Lord asked him to do that day. I can't come close to imagining what it would be like to build my own child's coffin. And that is still a world away from what God is asking Abraham to do. Part of faithful obedience shown here is knowing when it is not time to question God. Sometimes it's okay to ask God some clarifying questions. We think of Ananias, the man who ministered to Paul after he was converted. And the Lord came to him. He said, Ananias, I told Paul a guy named Ananias is going to come and heal him. And so I need you to go and do that. He's over on Straight Street. And Ananias was a faithful man, but he said, um, are you sure you want us to go this guy who kills all of your people and hates you and all these different things? And so he asked that clarifying question. It's not always wrong to do so, but sometimes it is time to just be quiet and obey. One author put it this way. He points out that Abraham, the bargainer, is silent. Remember, previously he had said to God, if only Ishmael will they live before you. They were having this discussion about the work God wanted to do in his life, and he kind of was bargaining. Him, well, what if we went with Ishmael? I already kind of got this covered. Or we think about the time with Lot, right? That long bargaining session that, that he had with the Lord, and uh, not here, not on this day. He was silent. The leading had been clear, and he didn't kick against it. How does this show us Jesus? We're reminded of his entry to Jericho on a donkey. We call it his triumphal entry. We're reminded of how two of his servants were with him in the courtyard of the high priest the night before the cross. Uh, there's, there's little images of Jesus all over this text. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Obedience is about moving forward to where God has shown you. God had explained that, uh, rather, he has explained that our walk of faith is going to sometimes lead us beside still waters, sometimes lead us into green pastures. Those are great. And sometimes it's going to lead us through the valley of the shadow of death. God does not promise us constant ease or constant comfort, far from it. But he does promise that he will constantly be present with us, showing us the way to go. And that way leads to life and to victory and to triumph and to reward. Uh, and so, th so that's the deal. We're reminded of Jesus here. We're told in the Gospels how he set his gaze on Jerusalem. He was determined to go to the place the Father was leading him to so that mankind could be redeemed. And here's the very best part. The place that God led his son, Jesus Christ, is the exact same place that Abraham was headed to that day, Mount Moriah. The place in the distance, the place God had told him about, it is the most important place in all the world. You might have a favorite place in the world. Uh, Mount Moriah is not my favorite place in all the world, but Mount Moriah is the most important place in all the world. It's not only the site of this passage, Genesis 22, it is the site later that God would have his temple built. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles. It's where Jerusalem would be many centuries later. And though there is some archaeological debate and dispute, many scholars believe that Jesus Christ was crucified about 750 yards from the very spot Abraham offered his son at the same place, Mount Moriah, this same little area. 
Verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship and we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. In his hand, he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together. Abraham didn't obey because he was afraid God would smite him. Very important. Uh, He's not obeying because he's afraid in that way. His obedience was rooted in hope. His obedience was rooted in the fact that he really trusted the Lord. What did he say? He said, we are going to come back. Me and the boy are going, but we are going to come back one way or another. That hopefulness, that trust affected his perspective. How did he think about what they were going to go do? What did he call it? He called it worship. He said, we're going to go over there and worship. He didn't say, hey, I have to go over here and do this terrible thing God's making me do. He said, we're going to go over here and worship. His whole perspective is so amazing in this this passage. Abraham trusted his Lord. He believed that God is good, that God is just, that God would be merciful, that God can do anything. Even though it's the worst day of his life, he says, but I still know God is good, and I still know God is with me, and I trust God that even if he has me kill my son, he's going to have to raise him from the dead. How old was Isaac? We're not told exactly. He certainly wasn't the little boy that is sometimes depicted, especially in like children's Bibles. They always try to show him to be like a little boy. He's not a little boy, even though they're using the term lad and young man, those sorts of things. Generally, scholars put him somewhere between the late teens all the way up to the age of 30. Uh, We're not sure, but here's what we know. He's strong enough to carry enough wood to burn a whole human. Uh, So however much that is, that's how old he is. And it means, importantly, that he would be strong enough to at very least escape his old man. His old man is like over, well over 100 years old, maybe 125, 130 years old. And uh, Isaac is much stronger, much faster. But Isaac was submissive to his father, just as Jesus would be. He willingly carried the wood, just as Jesus would carry his own cross. Isaac wasn't fooled. He wasn't led into something without agreeing to it. In fact, he had started to piece this all together, and he talks to his dad about it in verse 7. Isaac spoke to his father, Abraham, and he said, My father, and he replied, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, The fire and the wood are here. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. Jesus and the father had a tender, private conversation in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion. And in that conversation, Jesus asked about the plan of salvation, the plan for the sacrifice. He said, hey, is, how, are we sure this is the way? That, is there another way that we could do this? If not, your will be done. In both cases, Isaac and Jesus, there's no rebellion, no complaint, an earnest question, but uh, nothing more than that. Abraham could not reconcile the facts he found himself in. God planned the future around Isaac, but he was also demanding that Isaac die that day. When he could not reconcile these things, he trusted the Lord. He didn't say, okay, well, then I'm going I'm to bail until I understand it all, or I'm going to wait until God, you know, spells every single thing out for me, and then I'll obey him. He says, no, I'm, I'm going to obey. I, I believe the Lord will see to it. I believe that the Lord will provide, even though I can't understand how in the world he's going to do so. This gives us strength to obey as we walk with the Lord. God's going to ask us to do things that are impossible or things that... Uh, we can't understand. When that happens, we fall back into trust 
rather than rebellion. We remember that our God is good. He is trustworthy. He will provide what is necessary for our triumph. Without God's provision, Isaac was most definitely going to die that day. And without God's provision of a Savior, no human being has any hope for eternal life. All we can do is die. There's, that's, the, that's the end. Unless God intervenes, unless a substitute is made on our behalf. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And he bound his son Isaac and he placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. Linguists explain that the knife being used here wasn't a dagger. It was a cleaver, a meat cleaver. It was a butchering instrument because Abraham wasn't just killing his son. He, he, would, he would be butchering him that day if God didn't intervene. Uh, it's interesting, Isaac's name means laughter, and so we, should have, we, we have to say that, you know, he puts the laughter in slaughter. And so that's what was happening that day. We're putting the laughter slaughter. No? If you want to spell slaughter, you just put S in front of laughter. It's not just a stupid joke, it leads to something. Because that's what happened at Calvary. What do I mean by that? Jesus wasn't laughing, by no means, but for the joy set before him, he endured that horrible day. What was supposed to be an execution was uh, an act of deliverance for the entire world, all who would believe. The king of kings was led like a lamb to the slaughter, we're told. It pleased the Lord to make him an offering for us, and that leads to eternal rejoicing. When John saw him in the book of the Revelation, He's still the lamb that was slain. Uh, and so the Lord did this incredible thing for us. One commentary points out something interesting in this scene, that there's no talk of feelings. This is one of the most tense, the most dreadful passages in all the Old Testament. Uh, it, it is just full of, it's just sort of humming with, uh, with tension and difficulty. It's like a scene in a movie where they've got the strings uh, doing dissonant notes and it's just building, 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 and, and, and you're waiting for something terrible to happen. And yet, as we see each angle, we see him binding his son, we see him arranging the wood, we see him raising up the knife to butcher his son, we see it all, as it's all playing out, what do we see? What are we told? We, we just see meticulous, methodical obedience. Uh, we don't see any of the interior of the emotionality of either of the two individuals there on the mountain. Now, emotion's not a bad thing, but sometimes obeying God isn't going to feel good, but we're to obey despite our feelings, uh, just like Abraham did. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He replied, here I am. And then he said, don't lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Why did God wait to the very last second to intervene? Cutting it close, right? I think it's, it, it just seems weird. Remember, this was a dress rehearsal for the real show that would go all the way. But also, it demonstrates to us the reality that sometimes the refining process is going to be more intense than other times. Uh, think of how we use heat to melt different materials in the world today. You only need 33 degrees of heat to melt ice into water, right? No big deal. You still got to wear a jacket while you're doing it. Uh, but if you want to melt lead, you need 622 degrees of heat. If you want to melt gold, you need 1,950 degrees of heat. And then if you want to melt tungsten, you need 6,192 degrees of heat. 
And so different amounts of heat depending on the job that's getting done. The Bible talks about us having hearts of stone that he wants to turn into hearts of flesh. Sometimes God needs to melt a certain stoniness in my heart. Is it lead or is it tungsten? Uh, He knows and he will deal accordingly. Translators share a lovely insight that we don't want to miss. You can see it in your English Bibles. There's a change that happens in verse 11. In verses 1 through 10, God is always referred to by the more generic term Elohim. And so you'll just see God there. But from verse 11 on, the Lord is always referred to as Yahweh, and you should see Lord all caps. And there's this amazing pivot, the God of personal covenant, the God of provision, the God of mercy. And then we get our minds blown realizing that the angel of the Lord here is Jesus because he says, I'm going to do things for you. It is Jesus, the, the very one who would die on this very same mountain. He would be the one. Isaac was the understudy. He was the, he was the, real, the, the real participant. And he was going to die in this very place, giving himself for you and I. God would not withhold his son. Jesus would not withhold himself for our sake. He died so you could live. Before we go on, notice this. Sometimes obedience means not doing something. Lord, I'm all ready to do this thing for you. I built it all up. I have this great altar I've put together. I went to a whole bunch of trouble. And you know what? Sometimes the Lord says, just stop what you're doing. I want you to not do that. And we need to be ready to not do just as much as we're ready to do. Uh, verse 13, Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. So after all the strain of what had happened, a sacrifice still had to be made. I think that's remarkable that, hey, didn't I prove that I was good enough? Yeah, you proved that you really love me and you obey me. We still have to kill at something. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There was still a barrier of sin between God and man. Good intentions weren't enough. Something had to die in their place. And Abraham understood that. And so this is why Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. Ultimately, lambs aren't enough. Rams aren't enough. And he was the only substitute that could cover it. And he's the substitute God provided for you and I. In case we're missing the fact that God is foreshadowing, in the end, Abraham did not receive the lamb he expected. He said, hey, God's going to provide a lamb. And what does he receive? He receives a ram. It's just kind of an interesting way to say, yeah, there's still a lamb coming. It's going to be quite some time from now, but the lamb of God is going to show up one day. Even in the, even in the ram, we see a hint of God's plan. The word for ram in Hebrew can also be used for mighty ruler, like Jesus, our King. And so the substitute God provided was the strongest, the best, the mighty one, the ruler, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Verse 14, Abraham named that place, the Lord will provide. And so today it is said, it will be provided on the Lord's mountain. Translators let us know that where it says it will be provided on the Lord's mountain, the words might also mean God sees or will be seen on the mountain. And what a fantastic prophecy that is. God would look down from heaven and see Christ's death on Calvary and accept it as the full final payment to reconcile man to himself. He sees it and he accepts it. And at the same time, we can look to Calvary's hill. We can look to Mount Moriah where Jesus died on Golgotha. And we can see the Lord is seen there and say, oh man, God is, has put on human flesh and he died in my place so that I could be saved. He did what was necessary to save us all. It was all him. 
And notice Abraham's perspective. He wasn't resentful of what God asked him to do. The test of obedience didn't make him angry. He looked at his life and he said, God is good. God is a provider. And that is the same God that we're able to count on in our own lives. Verse 15, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. What's up with this? Was God not being as unconditional as he had pretended to be before? No, the Lord is reaffirming his covenant. He's also pointing out that even though his promises are sure and that his will will be done, that doesn't mean that we as his people don't have to obey. The opposite is true. Listen, we can't just say, look, God is gracious and God can't be wrong and he's promised to do things for me so it doesn't matter if I obey him or not. That's not true. That's the opposite of what is true. Jesus said we must obey. He said, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He says, if you love me, you'll do what the Word says. We can't have faith without obedience. You can't love God if you don't obey Him. If you don't obey God, He cannot come and make His home with you. That's what John 14, 23 says. So God's promises were unconditional, but if Abraham wanted to receive them and, and, and enjoy them, he'd have to participate with obedient faith. And the same is true of us. Verse 19, Abraham went back to his young men, and they got up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham settled in Beersheba. Where's Isaac? Well, he's undoubtedly with his dad, but again, the Holy Spirit's writing this story for us on purpose, and he is foreshadowing again for us. The next time we'll see Isaac in Genesis, he's going to be receiving a bride to himself. Jesus ascended from a mountain, kind of like Isaac does, uh, you know, uh, that's the image here. And the next time we'll see Jesus is when he's receiving his bride, the church, you and I, if you're a believer here tonight. These two servants in verse 19 have an interesting part to play. They can teach us a little bit about obedience too. What were they even doing? What was even their job? They're just kind of tagging along for this thing that the father and son were doing together. And isn't that a great, uh, a great example of what we're doing? We're tagging along with what the Lord wants to do. He wants to include us. He wants to do great things for us. He wants to benefit us and change us and strengthen us and all these things. We are tagging along with what the Lord is doing. They probably didn't understand a lot of what was going on that day. But they were ready to serve. They were ready to go the distance. They trusted Abraham, just like Abraham trusted God, and we should trust our master the same way. I'd encourage you to study this section more, see the many other ways it foreshadows our Lord and his sacrificial death on the cross in that very same place. Consider what it cost the Father and the Son to willingly choose to make that substitute on our behalf, people who are unworthy, people who bring nothing to the table. We who are at war with God, he made peace with us. He reconciled us to himself. Meanwhile, today we're servants of the Lord. God has called us and he has commanded us. It's not that we read this and we think, oh, okay, God one day might ask me to do something. God has already asked you to do a bunch of things. He has already called your name like he called Abraham. He has already given you directives. 
The specifics of his commands will depend on, you know, who you are and what roles God has given you. Are you a parent? Are you a husband? Are you a wife? Where do you find yourself? But we have already been called. We've already been commanded. We've already been given instructions and points of navigation, a place that God is leading us to. And so are we going to obey? Obedience is often very difficult, sometimes very unpleasant, but we must do it. Abraham did it, and he did it quickly, meticulously. He did it meekly, and he did it fully. He did it all the way. Can I say that I'm obeying God the way Abraham did in this passage? That's not a very easy question to answer all the time. What is much easier to know is that our God is full of grace. He's full of love toward us. He's full of power for us. And he's ready to walk with us as we move toward him, putting this unique faith into motion, receiving all that he has promised us, everything indeed.